Welcome to the Jerusalem Jones Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Hansen, a.k.a. Jerusalem Jones of Treasures in Time. That's my company, and this is my podcast. I'm a bit of a thespian, so let me bring history to life with a pinch of theatrical flair. Don't forget to subscribe as we plow into the past. This series is called Dig Deeper, the Untold Stories of Biblical Archaeology. Episode 4, Digging Up Canaan. Consider this. There's more archaeology being undertaken in Israel and its territories today than in any other location on earth. And yet, the origins of biblical Israel are as murky as ever. Where did the Israelites come from? And when did the Israelites as a people come into existence? Can the biblical record be read as historical when it declared that they came from Egypt in a mass exodus? Did they drift in from some other location, perhaps as pastoral nomads? Or are the majority of today's post-1960s scholars and archaeologists correct in their revisionist approach that the Israelites evolved from the indigenous Canaanite population. Those who theorize a real historical exodus found a powerful advocate in the brilliant and renowned biblical archaeologist William Foxwell Albright, whose so-called Baltimore School consisted of multiple disciples, including John Bright, and G.E. Wright. From 1932 to 1938, British archaeologist J.L. Starkey excavated Tel Ed-Duer, which he identified as Biblical Lachish, finding a destruction layer which Albright dated to between 1230 and 1220 before the Common Era. We read in the Biblical narrative, as Allah Horam Melech Gezer La Azor et Lachish, Viakehu Yahushua, Va et Amo, Ad Bilti Hish Irlo Sarid. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Joshua 10.33 Then there was the famous Israeli archaeologist Yigael Yadin, who excavated the Galilean city of Hatzor from 1955 to 1958, and who also found evidence of fiery destruction, which he dated to around 1220 BCE. The biblical book of Joshua lays out how it all went down. Vayashav Yehoshua ba'etai, vayilkod et chatzor, vayet malka hika ba'cherev, ki chatzor lefanim hi rosh kol hamam lechot ha'ele, vayaku et kol hanefesh asher ba, lafi cherev, acharem lo notar kol neshama, vayet chatzor saraf ba'esh, Joshua turned back at that time 
and took Hatzor and struck its king with the sword, for Hatzor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hatzor with fire. Joshua 11, 10 to 11. The notion of Hatzor as a conquest of Joshua got a serious boost from Yadin's disciple Amnon ben Tor, who conducted serious excavations at the site. Among other discoveries, he found remains of a throne room showing clear evidence of fiery destruction. How do you suppose our famous detective friend Sherlock Holmes would weigh in on all of this? Actually, Watson, he found a collapsed palace covered with more than a meter of destruction debris. The fire was so intense that it literally melted the bricks and the pottery remains. He called it the mother of all destructions, and he dated it to the 13th century BCE, corresponding to the date of the Exodus and Joshua's conquest. But fellow Israeli archaeologist Finkelstein wasn't buying it. He argued that Hatzor could have been destroyed by the Egyptians, the Sea Peoples, or a rival Canaanite city. Bentor pointed to decapitated idols found in the strata and asked, If Joshua did not destroy the city, who did? Finkelstein responded, arguing that there isn't any reason to interpret this as a conquest of Joshua. On the one hand, Bentor supports the historicity of the biblical narrative, but on the other hand, the fiery destruction he uncovered is two centuries later than the traditional biblical chronology. Meanwhile, more trouble arose for the biblical narrative. In the 1930s, Nelson Gluck, an American rabbi, academic, and archaeologist, compiled surface surveys of Transjordan, concluding that the whole area was unsettled between the 19th and 13th centuries BCE, effectively ruling out a date prior to the 1200s BCE for the Exodus. That's because the Israelites were said to have passed through the kingdoms of Transjordan, which by then was clearly a settled region, on their way to Canaan. To this we should add, however, that more recent surveys have overturned Gluck, showing that there was indeed settled habitation in Transjordan during this time frame. John Bright confidently declared, it may be regarded as certain that a violent eruption into the land took place in the late 13th century. But Bright's eruption has become anything but certain. True, definite 13th century BCE destruction levels have been found at sites identified as Biblical Debir, Bethel, Lachish, and Chatzor, but there's no evidence at Biblical I, 
Gibeon, and most importantly, Jericho. In the case of the accepted location of Ai, known as Et-Tel, there's no evidence of occupation from 2200 to 1200 before the Common Era, a gap of a thousand years. Yet the Bible declares, Vayisrof Yehoshua et ha'ai, vayasimea tel olam shmama ad hayom hazeh. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. Joshua 8:28. Then there's the site known as El Jib, or Biblical Gibeon, where excavations conducted by James Pritchard led to the conclusion that there was no city there at all during the late Bronze Age. Yet we read in the book of Joshua, Ve'yehomem Hashem lifnei Yisrael, ve'yakem makagdola begiv'on, ve'yirdafem derech ma'ale bet'choron, ve'yakem ad azeka ve'ad makeda. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Bet-Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. Joshua 10, 10. Pritchard declared in 1965, we have reached an impasse on the question of supporting the traditional view of the conquest with archaeological undergirding. Not surprisingly, the Baltimore School fought back. Bright argued that the evidence at Jericho is unclear due to extensive erosion. Perhaps the Middle Bronze Age walls were simply reused in the Late Bronze Age. Unfortunately, he couldn't supply a shred of evidence to confirm this. Albright suggested that when the Bible records the conquest of Ai, it's really referring to Bethel, which was in fact destroyed in the 13th century BCE. As for Gibeon, he argued that there must have been a small settlement there, the remains of which had simply eroded away thus explaining the lack of Bronze Age material. British archaeologist Kenneth Kitchen argued that erosion may explain many of the problems encountered, famously declaring, Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Still, gaps in occupation at sites including Hebron, Arad, Zephath, Horma, add yet more flies to the archaeological ointment. In recent archaeology, we find even more flies. For example, there is serious continuity between the material remains 
of late Bronze Age culture and early Iron Age culture when the Israelites supposedly arrived on the scene. In other words, the so-called unconsidered trifles of daily life unearthed in the digs seem very much the same. What say ye, Sherlock? That's not what we'd expect, Watson. If a completely different culture, namely the Israelites, had invaded the land from elsewhere. Then there's the fact that very few cities of the late Bronze Age had any defensive walls. Another element of the biblical narrative not corroborated by facts on the ground. Moreover, archaeologist Bryant Wood has, on the basis of pottery remains, determined that the destruction of Bethel, Debir, Lachish, and Hatzor came in three distinct waves, spanning a full century. Perhaps, as David Usishkin of Tel Aviv University argued, the conquest of Canaan was in fact a lengthy process, rather than the blitzkrieg supposedly led by Joshua. Or perhaps there was no conquest at all. That was the view of Albrecht Alt, who put forth the so-called infiltration theory. That's the idea that the Israelites were a group of pastoral semi-nomads who spent their winters in the desert regions bordering Canaan, slowly migrating into the Canaanite hill country during the summer to graze their flocks. As these settlers grew in numbers and became more unified, they tried to take control of the whole of Canaan. Only then do we see evidence of destruction in scattered locations. Alt found an advocate in Martin Noth, who reconstructed these events according to literary critical approaches to the biblical text. Noted Israeli archaeologist Yohanan Aharoni also became an adherent of the Alt-Noth model. According to this theory, the destruction of Israelite cities recorded in Joshua 2 through 9 amount to what's called etiology, a mythical explanation for something observed long afterwards, such as a ruined city. But Noth was always open to changing his mind based on the evidence. At first, he classified the destruction of Hatzor as pure etiology. But after Yadin's excavations, he admitted the possibility of real Israelite history behind the destruction. Interestingly, Volkmar Fritz tried to find a middle ground in the battle of ideas with his symbiosis hypothesis. He suggested that the Israelites may well have been semi-nomads who came to Canaan from elsewhere, even if not from Egypt. Still, the minimalist camp put forth increasingly radical theories. Meet the peasant revolt theory, first popularized by George E. Mendenhall. But a little detective work is necessary, right, Sherlock? 
The idea was that the Israelites were basically a group of peasants who rose up against their Canaanite overlords and overthrew them. Might there have been a link between the word Hebrew and the term Apiru appearing in ancient Egyptian papyri? Might the first Israelites have been a group of former slave labor captives who escaped oppression in Egypt? When this group reached Canaan, might their idea of a covenant community have proved attractive to those suffering under Canaanite rulers? To those who identified themselves with the former slaves and rapidly swelled their community. Mendenhall observed this. If the Israelites were called Hebrews, they could be termed so only from the point of view of some existing legitimate political society from which they had withdrawn. There was no radical displacement of population, there was no genocide, there was no large-scale driving out of population, only of royal administrators, and that out of necessity. Though Mendenhall's Apiru thesis was widely rejected, the theory was further developed by Norman Gottwald, who saw it in terms not of a peasant revolt, but a social revolution, a kind of ancient Marxist uprising. Gottwald regards the Iron One settlements in the hill country not as the work of Joshua's Israelites, but as the work of rebel groups withdrawing to regions of lowest resistance. Yet there isn't a shred of evidence to support the idea of a peasant revolt in the 13th century before the Common Era. Moreover, if the peasants had in fact revolted, their population would hardly have been substantial enough to account for the Iron Age I settlements that are taken to represent the dawn of Israel. In any case, the minimalists continue to quarrel over whether the Iron Age I settlers were semi-nomads who entered Canaan from some other place, or whether they were in fact indigenous to Canaan itself. Let's have our friend Sherlock lay it all out. Here's the evidence we do have, Watson. One, the earliest Iron One villages were established on the central ridge and in the small valleys of Canaan, the best areas for grazing and farming. Orchard agriculture only came later with the settlement of the western slopes of the hill country. This pattern of settlement indicates that the settlers had a pastoral rather than an urban or rural background. Two, the layout of many Iron One sites, typically an elliptical plan in which dwellings surround a central space, resembles the layout of tent encampments of nomadic groups and likely evolved from them. Three, extensive use of 
subterranean storage silos by the Iron One villagers is a characteristic of nomadic societies settling down. 4. Simple broad-room houses and pillared four-room houses are developments from the Bedouin-style tent. All of this is what we know. Now, what can we deduce, Watson? Finkelstein sees the origin of the settlers in the deterioration of Canaanite society at the end of the Middle Bronze Age. The settled population became nomads and remained so until the beginning of the Iron Age. Niels Peter Lemke takes a position that's even more radical than Mendenhall and Gottwald. He says that the traditions regarding the origin of Israel are so late as to be useless on a historical level. His working hypothesis is that during the first half of the 14th century BCE, the central highlands of Canaan were inhabited by the Apiru, that is, runaway bond servants from the small city-states in the valleys and plains of Canaan. They don't show up in the archaeological record because they were basically outlaw groups. Later, in the Iron Age, they settled down again, adopting a tribal lifestyle and eventually identifying themselves as Israelites. According to theories such as this, there was no Israel prior to the beginning of Iron Age I. But the problem with all this theorizing again goes back to the great archaeological smoking gun, the Merneptah Stila, dating to around 1207 before the Common Era, and declaring, The Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome. Gezer has been captured. Yanoam is made non-existent. Israel lies desolate. Its seed is no more. Bear in mind, it's been argued that the beginning of Iron One should be dated not to around 1200 BCE, but instead to roughly 1170 BCE. That means that Israel is mentioned in the archaeology of Egypt at least 30 to 40 years before the earliest settlements of Iron Age I, which supposedly coincides with the formation of Israel. Little wonder that the minimalists also minimize the Merneptah inscription, suggesting that it might refer to some entity other than the biblical Israel. Traditionalists argue that the biblical chronology placing the Exodus and Joshua's conquest in the 1400s before the Common Era rather than the 1200s BCE better suits the evidence. After all, it would take a considerable period of time for the invading Israelites to settle down and become visible in the archaeological record 
as they do at the beginning of the Iron Age. Even prior to the beginning of the Iron Age, they would have become an established part of the population of Canaan, which goes a long way toward explaining the Merneptah inscription of 1207 BCE. But, Watson, if we choose an early date for Joshua, where is the archaeological evidence of violent conquest at the end of the 1400s BCE? The answer might be found in the fall of Canaan's fortified cities at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, generally dated between 1550 and 1500 BCE. But a new argument has been advanced, suggesting that this destruction occurred about a century later, in the 1400s. It's well known that Canaan's urban culture collapsed at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, and that in the beginning of the Late Bronze Age, the population became semi-nomadic. Could those semi-nomadic invaders have been the Israelites under Joshua? Is it possible that the archaeological evidence has been there all along, but that we've been looking two centuries too late? The archaeological plot continues to thicken.